Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. So who knew? It turns out that Ron Brownstein's brilliance transcends politics. Because today marks the release of a brand new book that he's written. It is a love letter to a great American city. Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. You know Ron Brownstein as a great writer and senior editor for The Atlantic and also a CNN senior editor. He argues that L.A. in 1974 exerted more influence than any other city in America, and he joins me now. Hey, Ron, thank you for being here. Congratulations on the book, which I've read and thoroughly enjoyed. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's so kind of you. Really glad to be here and, to talk about first first appearance to talk about the book. So and oh well, that's you. that's an honor for me. And and listen, um, further congratulations because I, I just read the Wall Street Journal very favorable mm-hmm. review. I know that the Times has reviewed it today as well. But to come out of the box on release day with reviews from the Journal and the Times is a, a real feather in your cap and a tribute, I guess, to you as a writer. 
Well, appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, it's uh, it, it's great. I mean, it, 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 during the pandemic and during the uh, the kind of the later years of of the kind of the daily turmoil of Trump, it was it was kind of a relief for me to go spend time in 1974. I mean, I looked forward to it uh, when I would uh, you know kind of put down my day job of chronicling the very you know the latest. Uh, chaos and catastrophe in American life and have a chance to look at a at a period which was both uh, that produced both amazing, lasting, legendary popular culture, uh, but also, as I argue, was kind of a hinge point in our social and political life. Well, I was going to get there eventually, but I may as well go there right now. Listen to the acknowledgments. You are thanking Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Graham Nash, John Landau, yeah. Jane Fonda, Warren Beatty, Rob Reiner, Norman Lear, etc. Et you must have had a hell of a good time writing this book. Oh, yeah, it was, you know, I, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I, I wrote a book a long time ago uh, called The Power and the Glitter, which was a history of the relationship between Hollywood and politics going back to the 1930s. So I knew that the fr- from that experience and from that research, you know, I was very well aware that the late 60s and early 70s was considered the second golden age in Hollywood, along with uh, the early, uh, you know, the late 30s and early 40s. Those are the two great periods in Hollywood history. But when I left D.C. and moved out to L.A. a few years ago, um, I really started listening more than I ever had before because I grew up in New York uh, to the Southern California sound of the early 1970s. I mean, Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles. And it did strike me that all of this was kind of happening at exactly the same time as that that great upsurge in Hollywood of carnal knowledge and five easy pieces in Chinatown and the Godfather and Godfather two and, and the conversation and everything else that was coming out in the early 70s. And then I think like the last piece clicked into place when I, I I'm pretty sure it was when I went to a political event out here at Norman Lear's house, the producer, uh, Norman Lear. And driving home, I was thinking, okay, well, he was doing All in the Family at the same time that this was happening uh, in Hollywood and David Geffen and the Eagles and Jackson Brown were producing the classic Southern California sound. And that's when I really started to, to look seriously at, at this period. And it, it is, I mean, I think if you look back, I mean, people talk about the literary world in Paris in the twenties and the modern art world in New York in the fifties, and those are cultural creative high points. But the early 1970s in L.A., all of this is happening at the same time. I mean, Chinatown and The Godfather and All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore and MASH and The Eagles and Jackson Brown uh, and Joni Mitchell and Linda Ronstadt, they're all working literally within blocks of each other uh, in L.A. And I would argue that they were all responding to the same underlying force that was transforming, forcing change in the music, movies and television business, which was the increasing buying power uh, of the baby boom. Uh, that brought cultural change long before it brought political change. Well, and and as the I guess the thesis of the book is, as the Wall Street Journal in their favorable review said today, quote, what does all this popular history add up to? Mr. Brownstein argues that thanks in no small part to L.A.'s cultural revolution, Americans became more suspicious of authority, more sensitive to women's rights, more lenient toward premarital sex and more tolerant generally. He notes the irony that many of these changes were brought about by apparently chauvinistic white males. How'd they do in capturing the thesis? Yeah, they did. They did. I mean, look, I think the, the, the great pop culture produced in early 1970s L.A. was the bridge over which uh, the cultural critique of American life that, that developed in the 1960s was cemented uh, irrevocably 
into popular culture. I mean, ideas like greater suspicion of authority uh, in business and government, changing relations between men and women, more personal freedom, somewhat more inclusion of previously marginalized uh, groups. These were all insurrectionary ideas in the 1960s. And ideas, by the way, they were almost completely uh, banished from popular culture, but really starting in the late 60s uh, with movies like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, uh, uh, and then accelerating into the early 70s, as television is transformed with All in the Family going on the air in 1971, Mary Tyler Moore uh, and MASH uh, bringing these ideas as well. And then all the things that were happening in music, these ideas became kind of uh, part of Americans' mental architecture. And it really was the pop culture uh, of the early 1970s that I, I would argue uh, enshrined the cultural triumph uh, of the ideas of the 60s. That's a really important point. I mean, the, the 60s critique of America never produced the political transformation that someone like, say, Tom Hayden, who I write about in the book with his wife, Jane Fonda, might have anticipated. That never happened. I mean, the baby boom uh, has produced two Democratic presidents and two Republican presidents. And in many ways, it's moved right over its lifetime. But it did fundamentally change the culture. It did change the way we live. Uh, ideas that are now part of our mental arc, you know, furniture uh, really were not, uh, were not in the American mainstream uh, before they were put into the popular culture of the early 70s. And that triumph, I think, uh, endures and really really makes this period, in addition to being a lot of fun, one that is a genuine hinge point in American history. And against the backdrop of the subject matter for which Ron Brownstein is best known, which is your political insight, this was the summer of Watergate. You focus on 1974. It was August 8 of 74 that Nixon resigned. In fact, you have some, I thought, pretty humorous anecdotes about what was going on that very night uh, in the world that you're writing about. Oh, the night, you know, I, I argue in the book that Nashville is kind of the, the movie Nashville by Robert Altman is kind of the Moby Dick of early 70s cinema. It's not necessarily the best movie of the early 70s, both Godfathers and Chinatown at least uh, are better, but it is the one movie that tries to wrestle all of the big themes of, uh, of early 70s uh, Hollywood uh, into one sprawling canvas. And on the night that Nixon resigned, they were filming literally at the Grand Ole Opry, which was the, um, uh, in, in some ways, the symbolic heart, the beating heart of Nixon's America. Uh, and um, they had attracted a crowd uh, for scenes uh, from the movie that were featuring Lily Tomlin and, and Hank Gibson. Um, and, you know, there was kind of a, the, the crew was there and Altman was there and all these Hollywood people there. And Roy Acuff, who was kind of the, the, the kind of the proprietor, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the, the steward of, uh, of uh, the Grand Ole Opry, was uneasy to begin with. Uh, about kind of the presence of all these Hollywood liberals. Nashville was not then what it is now, as Linda Ronstadt explained to me in some depth. And literally, uh, he, at one point in the evening, once Nixon's resignation becomes apparent, he kind of corners the Hollywood types and points at them and said, you did this, you did this. And then went off and locked himself in his... uh, uh, in his office and played the fiddle mournfully for the next few hours. It was kind of a version of what I argue was happening every week on All in the Family when we were watching uh, the older generation uh, kind of make their terms of surrender to the changing social realities of America after the 1960s. It was, it was one of those kinds of transition moments. Well, I love how you tie together what was going on in Laurel Canyon musically, how you talk about what's going on in the film industry. By the way, As I read your book last weekend, you inspired me 
to go on to Netflix. They didn't have it, but one of my providers did. And I watched Shampoo, which I oh, hadn't yeah. seen in a long time because you wrote so much about Warren Beatty. Uh, it stands and the shampoo. test of time. It stands yes. the test. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, Love absolutely. that movie. I mean, look, I mean, one thing I'm hoping in this book is that people, especially younger people, rediscover some of this great movies, music, and television that was so important in kind of changing the world in which we live in, in addition to being a lot of fun and great movies. I mean, war, shampoo, you know, uh, on its surface is just this kind of uh, a frothy, uh, a bubbly, maybe is a better word, uh, a sex comedy about Warren Beatty as a uh, hairdresser in um, Beverly Hills in 1968, who is uh, juggling assorted girlfriends, lovers, uh, and mistresses. Um, but it's really, you know, at, 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 a, at just really just an inch below the surface. It's about the deflation of political and the personal dreams of the 1960s. I mean, it takes place on election night, 1968. It's filmed in 1974. And there's a very elegiac looking back uh, at what people hoped would be, you know, the opportunity to live a more fulfilled life, to have a different kind of uh, society politically. And you see in the movie uh, on, a, on a gray morning, all of those ideas fade away. It, it's, it's in some ways, you know, that is kind of a, an, the, the core theme of the book, because I, I believe this pop culture was all wrestling with the question of what of the ideals of the 60s could be sustained in the stonier social and political soil of the 70s. And you see the the same kind of issues that Beatty grapples with in Shampoo really ring through the first three Jackson Brown albums, right? I mean, on each of the first three albums, uh, there is one song that directly grapples with that question of what from the 60s could be sustained in the 70s. The first one is Rock Me on the Water from his, from his first album, where, it, where, it is, where he is at his most optimistic. On the second album, you get For Every Man, in which he is beginning to wonder if he is going to be left just holding sand, in his phrase, waiting for every man, which is his phrase for the kind of communal uh, social action of the 60s. And then you get to his third album, and you get Before the Deluge, in which uh, you know, the possibility of fundamental change is even even more distant but on The Pretender. Uh, he writes, were they only the fitful dreams of some greater awakening? But what I think is really important is whether we're talking about Beatty or Jackson Brown or even Hayden and Fonda, as the 70s went on, they all found ways to look forward more than they looked back. And even as their dreams of fundamental transformation you know, were left holding sand, as Jackson Brown says, they still, like millions of other uh, uh, baby boomers, found ways uh, to kind of reenter the mainstream of American society and live productive lives that brought change, um, you know, in, in many different ways. Um, so it, it really is a story uh, of kind of a generational story. And as you point out, one of the ironies is that, it, is that apart from the music, a lot of the people who told this generational story were older than the baby boomers themselves. I mean, Norman Lear becomes the, you know, the principal arbiter on television. Larry Gelbart uh, wrote jokes for Bob Hope and, and was the guiding light behind MASH. And of course, James L. Brooks is the closest thing to kind of the younger generation who co-creates Mary Tyler Moore. Ron Brownstein's book is called Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. I was 12 years old in 1974, but I remember the greatest night in television. Mm. And I can remember, Ron, being shooed away by my parents 
It would have been before 74. It would have been when All in the Family first debuted. But they yes. thought it was inappropriate for me to be watching it. And there's a great story in your book about the consternation within CBS and how they were going to air this show and how even the cast and crew on the very night uh, of the debut, the pilot didn't know which episode was going to be aired. Right. I mean, look, uh, by, by the way, there's an excerpt of the All in the Family story on the Atlantic website today for people who want to get a little sneak preview of the book. Uh, the moment when All in the Family went on the air in January 1971 really was the beginning of the road toward peak TV that we are living on. Because through the 60s, TV had d- deliberately, even defiantly, looked away from all of the changes happening in society. As I said you know, in the book, uh, every night CBS, for a half hour, uh, Walter Cronkite exposed them to all of the fissures opening in American life. And then CBS, and along with all the other networks, spent the next three and a half hours trying to erase it from their minds. But in the late 60s, a very unlikely champion, Robert Wood, who was a very conservative Southern Californian uh, USC grad, football booster, Nixon fan, Reagan fan, he had become president of CBS. And he began to be concerned, uh, being prodded in many ways by their business staff, more than the, uh, as much as the programming staff, that they were losing younger viewers. And they were losing them in part. He talks about in one meeting to movies like Easy Rider, which came out in 1969. So he wanted something uh, that would give the, 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 uh, the network more relevance, uh, more immediacy, connect the medium to the moment in a way that it had defiantly not done in the 60s when its shows were like the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction and Green Acres and Gomer Pyle. And so All in the Family was a project that was adapted from a British show by Norman Lear, uh, who had produced kind of mainstream, it's really important to understand, Norman Lear was an unlikely revolutionary. So was Robert Wood in the 60s. Norman Lear produced mostly very mainstream entertainments. There was little in what he had shown either on TV and movies that said this was a guy with a burning mission uh, to uh, kind of uh, think about American society in a critical way. But this story of the bigoted father and the liberal son translated into the son-in-law in the show, just resonated with him from his own personal experience. And in his mid-40s, he found a passionate and urgent voice that he had never before displayed. And he produced this absolute landmark. 50 years later, the language of the first episode of All in the Family comes through like a rock through the television screen. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I was jarring. it's jarring to today. Yeah, today. I, to, 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 today. To read it today, and it's jarring. Right, it is. And so uh, so Robert Wood wanted to put it on the air, but he was really uncertain about putting that first episode on the air, in particular the reference to uh, Gloria and Mike um, uh, heading up the stairs at 1110 on a Sunday morning Sunday. Uh, right. for some marital relations. Um, so he, uh, he, you know, pressed Lear to start with the second episode, uh, which... Uh, Lear thought was weaker, but also Lear, uh, as as brilliant as he was, felt that they needed the first episode that they could all jump in the pool together. They could all get fully wet together right from the beginning, Archie uh, unfiltered. Uh, and literally as late as that night, uh, they were in the control room, in John Rich's control room here in L.A., uh, filming, I think, the sixth or seventh episode of the year. And at that point, they still did not know at 6.30 California time, 9.30 Eastern, uh, whether CBS had uh, put on the first episode or not. And as I say in the book, the CBSI blinked and they put on the first episode <laughs> and the rest literally is television history. You would never know from the book that Ron Brownstein is actually Queens by birth, a lover of Los Angeles where he's lived for the past seven years, as he describes with his L.A. lady, quote, no city 
has ever moved me as Los Angeles does. It is open and welcoming, diverse and creative, soothing and exhilarating. L.A. has many flaws and inequities. To me, it is the capital of the future in American life, the place that more than any other always points the way to what America is becoming. Final question. If I were with you on an afternoon of leisure in Los Angeles, where are we going? Well, there's like two options. We, we, we could be going hiking in Malibu, which is just, you know, fabulous. Kind I'm of, in for that. Kind of kind of uh, fabulous uh, nature. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, the other thing, the other thing that I that I really love in L.A. I mean, I live near I live near the beach and that bike path on the beach going down to Manhattan Beach and watching the surfers and the sun glinting off the waves. Uh, it's uh, it's really irreplaceable. I, I will say that there were many times I mentioned, you know, how in the last few years uh, it, it was a great retreat. And I hope it would be for readers to kind of spend some time in 1974 L.A. amid everything we're dealing with now. But I would be driving up to Malibu. We would be driving up to Malibu to go on a hike or to go to the farmer's market or something and just kind of say, wouldn't it be great if, you know, somehow we kind of went through the hot tub time machine and we came out in 1974 and Linda Ronstadt's <laughs> place in the colony on a Saturday night when, I mean, I mean, people like Graham Nash and Jackson Brown, you know, would tell me that, you know, they would take their guitars when they went to somebody's house on Saturday night. And, and, and there's a story of someone told me about David Crosby when Johnny Mitchell first came at her, David Crosby would bring her to parties to kind of, you know, get her known. And, and she was so beautiful and so luminous and so talented. Somebody said to me, like uh, the next day, I thought we had hallucinated her, you know, and <laughs> I, I do, I do wish, or I would be a fly on the wall when, when, when Warren Beatty would visit Bob Dylan during his brief time living out here and they'd spend, they'd spend, you know, hours talking movies. I mean, it just would have been great. Oh, or or John, uh, and you write about this, John Lennon's Lost John Weekend Lennon. was in 1974 with Harry Nilsson. In Los Angeles, in Lou Adler's house. Uh, Lou Adler, the great producer uh, and, and songwriter earlier than that, who produced Tapestry, among other among other things, oh. lent John Lennon his house. Well, One night, John Lennon got so you know, zonked out of his mind that he destroyed all of Lou Adler's gold records on the wall. And the other person in the house that night, the one who told Lou Adler about it, Jimmy Iovine. So, you know, it, it's really, it's really a Couldn't great cast in this story. Couldn't I mean, so many up. people came together in LA in the early seventies. Linda Ronstadt described it like Berlin uh, in the thirties, a prism through which American culture passed uh, in those years. And, you know, there's the kind of the Woody Allen, Annie Hall view of LA uh, that kind of predominates, but this was its moment. This was magic hour in LA when all three of the big entertainment industries were kind of, and, uh, you know, had aces, were holding aces, music, movies, and television. And it was really like an honor to tell that story for a younger generation. Not to mention it was remembered as well. By the time this came along, it was all over. Yes. Hey, Ron, I love the book. Congrats on it. Wish you good things. Thanks for having me, Michael. Always, always a pleasure to be with you. Rock Me on the Water is Ron Brownstein's brand new book. You'll love it. It's all about 1974 in Los Angeles. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays.